Amen. Thank you, Jerome. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church this morning. So you all have probably heard of the term identity crisis. It's uh, kind of become a part of our vocabulary in this country and around the world over the last 50 or 60 years. It's in dictionaries now. Um, People have become accustomed to somebody having an identity crisis. If you're not familiar with what an identity crisis is, the definition, according to Google, is a period of uncertainty and confusion in which a person's sense of identity becomes insecure, typically due to a change in their expected aims or role in society. The term identity crisis was coined and developed by a psychologist named Eric Erickson. Makes, makes me wish my name was John Johnson. Uh, but Erickson believed that the formation of one's identity uh, was one of the most important aspects of one's life. He thought that one's identity shifted and changed over time as a person goes through life and experiences different things. For example, when somebody gets a new job or ends a relationship or has a child, their identity is either challenged by those things or it's made more clear by those experiences. And also, according to Erickson, exploration into different avenues of life helps one develop their true sense of identity. So in other words, it's kind of like when you go shopping for a pair of shoes. You go to different stores, you try on a couple pairs of shoes at each store, and ultimately you got to decide which shoe looks best on you, which one fits more comfortably, which shoe you like overall, and then you go with it. It's like choosing an identity for yourself. Well, researchers since Erickson have found that individuals who make a strong commitment towards a single identity lead happier and healthier lives than those who do not choose an identity. So if you feel like you are unsure in your role in life or that you don't really know who the real you is, then according to Erickson, you might be having an identity crisis. Our text today comes from the first chapter of Ephesians. And here, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in the city of Ephesus, which was in western Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, western Turkey. And he's writing to these Christians in Ephesus from a prison cell. He's behind bars. And I'm sure he's just biting at the bit, ready to get out there, ready to get out of jail so he can go spread the gospel. But he hears news that the gospel is still being spread and that there are people in Ephesus who are hearing the word and believing So even though that Paul is in prison behind bars, he still has reason to rejoice. And he's not completely helpless in prison either. Paul can still pray, which is very important for Christians to pray. And he can still write letters. So that's what he's doing. He's praying and writing letters. So in this letter to the Ephesians, beginning in chapter 1, verse 13, I'm going to read through verse 23. Paul writes, and you, were all, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. 
Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's a powerful scripture right there. And what we have going on in, in Ephesus is a group of people who are believing the gospel. But what we also have going on in Ephesus is a group of Christians that are having an identity crisis. They're still learning. They don't understand what it fully means to be in Christ, to be a Christian. They're lacking some very important knowledge. So Paul writes them a letter to inform them of this knowledge. So as we hone in on verse 17, it says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. What is the spirit of wisdom and revelation? Well, it's simply the Holy Spirit when a believer is converted to Christ. They're blessed with the Holy Spirit. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bestow knowledge about what God has done for Christians, for humans. It helps people understand what God did for them more clearly. That's what biblical wisdom and revelation is. It's tied to God's knowledge of God's will. Namely, knowledge about God's redeeming actions towards his creation, especially Jesus's role in redeeming mankind from sin. So the spirit of wisdom and revelation helps us who receive the Holy Spirit at conversion to see what God has done for us more clearly. And when a person understands what God has done for them more clearly, what the person learns is something pretty special about her own identity. This is what the Christians in Ephesus needed help with, understanding what God had done for them and who they really were in Christ. As a people who had turned away from a pagan lifestyle, a lifestyle where they just gave in to their sinful nature, a lifestyle of idolatry and sexual immorality, now that they have made the big step from that culture to believing in Christ and following Christ, how has their identity changed? In verse 18, after Paul 
prays that these Christians may be blessed with the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He now prays that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that we have little eyeballs with eyelids and eyelashes on our hearts that are looking around at our ribs and our stomach and our lungs. It means that Paul wants these Christians to see more clearly what God has done for them. He wants them to go from blind to certain information, to be able to see it and keep it stored deep down inside of them in their hearts. These Christians are in need of knowledge. So before we move on too far in the text, let me say something really quick about knowledge throughout uh, the Bible, Old Testament and the New Testament. Biblical knowledge isn't a fixed quantum, like a fact that you learn, like there are 5,280 feet in a mile or that the average lifespan of a blue whale is 85 years. At least we'll learn something today, right? It's not like that. Biblical knowledge is developed over time in a person's life as they are obedient to God's will. That's biblical knowledge. It's kind of like developing a relationship with somebody. So kind of like when Jeff Adair and I develop a friendship, we gain knowledge about each other, about each other's characteristics and mannerisms. And hopefully we learn something about ourselves in the meantime. So one develops a sense of identity to the extent that one develops a knowledge of God. And when I say that, one, one develops and strengthens their sense of identity. It means they, they do that to the extent that they pursue their relationship with God. The more time you put into that relationship, the more efforts, the more time you pray, the more time you listen, the more time you read, the more time you observe God's creation. You learn more about yourself when you do those things. Okay, so Paul lists three things that he wants these Christians in Ephesus to be knowledgeable about. The first is that they may know the hope to which God has called them. You may know the hope to which God has called you. Now, note that this hope is not a personal calling uh, as, this, as if this is to be taken in an individualistic fashion. What Paul is talking about here is God's comprehensive call to all of mankind. When God stepped in and took action and said, come to me. God's comprehensive call for salvation. And Paul is saying that these Christians have a lot to look forward to. Their, their future is bright because they have responded to this call. Salvation, righteousness, resurrection in an incorruptible body and eternal life. This is what these Christians have to hope for. That's some pretty good hope, if you ask me. And where would people be without hope? When a person has nothing to look forward to in their life, the results are tragic, aren't they? Hopelessness destroys Human life. Remember our friend Eric Erickson, who was responsible for this theory of 
identity crisis. Erickson had something pretty cool to say about hope. He says, Hope is both the earliest and the most indispensable virtue inherent in the state of being alive. If life is to be sustained, hope must remain. Even where confidence is wounded, trust impaired. I think the Apostle Paul would agree wholeheartedly with Erickson here that hope is that important that it sustains life. So Paul wants these Ephesian Christians to know that they are a people full of hope, that they have a lot to look forward to. The second thing Paul wants these Christians' hearts to see is the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. The riches of God's, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And notice here that this isn't our inheritance. God does not give us an inheritance and go away. Okay, God does not go away. What Paul is saying here is that when one becomes a Christian, they become a part of God's inheritance. And God is going to cash us in when Jesus returns. It means you become a part of God's chosen people, loved by God, precious in God's sight. And this, according to Paul, is need-to-know information, especially for these Christians whose former religion involved gods who were kind of thought to have erratic personalities, responsible for the destruction of crops, disease, um, wreaking havoc through natural disasters. Now Paul says the one true God is not like that. He doesn't pick on people. The one true God loves you and wants to save you. That's a big difference. That's a big change to get used to. So being treasured by God and having your life full of hope doesn't do something for your sense of identity. I don't know what will. Maybe the third thing that Paul says uh, about Christians, about their identity, maybe that will do something for you. The third thing Paul wants the Ephesians hearts to see is God's incomparably great power for us who believe. So Paul first informs the Ephesians that they are people of hope and then they, they are God's treasured possessions. And now he says that they have God's power on their side. Now, that is big because just like Christians today, Christians are involved in an ongoing spiritual warfare on earth, battling sin, battling Satan. But God provides the means for the Christian to fight back. And not only fight back, but to win, to be victorious. How encouraging is it to know that that Christians have God's power in their back pocket when when involved in spiritual warfare? It's pretty neat. Are you calling upon that power? Are you calling upon God's power when you're tempted or when you're in the, the valleys of life? Or are you just relying on your own power, your own strength? 
When you think of something powerful, what comes to mind? Maybe one of those big engines. Maybe a hurricane. Or a big tidal wave. Or a mighty rushing river. The power tools. All those things are, are very powerful, no doubt. But God's power is nothing like that. Tim the Toolman Taylor has nothing on God. Do you guys know who Tim the Toolman Taylor is? Yes. He likes things with power. Let's just say that. Well, Paul describes the power that God gives Christians like this in verse 19. He says that power is like the working of God's mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. The same power that brought life from death, that raised Jesus from the dead, and not only that, but lifted him up above all power and dominion, over all authority, enthroned Jesus at God's right hand. That same power is the power that God gives Christians to maintain their walk. And there's nothing on earth like it. It's more powerful than a hurricane or a tidal wave or a river. It brings life from death. It gives hope to the hopeless. It gives a home to the homeless. And for those who don't have an identity, it gives them their true identity. And for those who are poor and insignificant in the eyes of the world, it makes them, Ryan, wait for it. For those who are poor and insignificant in the eyes of the world, let's see the next slide. One more. Makes them forever royal. <laughs> That's right. Isn't it good to be on the winning side? If we have the power of God on our side and we actually wield it, we can't lose. We can't lose. Well, the fact that the term identity crisis exists in our vocabulary and the fact that many people in this country struggle with identity issues is proof that people need the gospel. It's proof that people need the spirit of wisdom and revelation. It's proof that people need hope, that people need a family to be a part of, and that people need this power of God on their side. Or else they don't have much hope of winning. If you really believe this, church, then you'll take it to those hopeless people. You'll take the message. Are you ready to do that? Otherwise, it's just something kind of nice to think about. Just a nice idea. But if you really believe it, you won't keep it to yourself. There are people within the church who struggle with identity issues. 
And it's okay for Christians to struggle. It's just kind of part of being a Christian. It involves some struggling sometimes. And it really shouldn't be. Christians are going to struggle. If you're a Christian, you might get fired from your job. You might fail a test. You might fail a class. You might get cancer or some other disease. Paul went to prison for his faith. You might go to prison. But you should never have issues with who you really are in Christ and your true identity. The Bible makes it clear that the one who is in relationship with God is the one who has found his true identity. So if the eyes of your heart need opened, need enlightened, I hope that this sermon will be that enlightenment, will be a reminder of your worth, of who you are. Central to your identity is hope. And central to your identity is love and the power of God. Isn't that awesome? It's pretty awesome. Maria is 15 years old. She is from the uh, Eastern European country of Moldova, and she was blind from birth. Notice I said she was blind from birth. Her left eye uh, didn't have any hope of being restored, but her right eye had the potential for being surgically repaired. The surgeon said it, it was only the power of God that was responsible for restoring Maria's sight. He compared the, uh, the operation to if you had two pieces of saran wrap and glued them together tightly and you had to cut those two pieces of saran wrap in two without tearing either side. That's pretty an, an intense surgery. Well, the surgery was successful. And I want you to watch Maria's reaction when she looks in the mirror and sees herself for the very first time. She sees who she really is. Roll the clip. Maria? I see Maria. Oh, careful. <laughs> you see Casey? Look at Casey. Can you see me? There's Maria. Look at her. Now, I wanted you to watch Maria's reaction because I think this is the equivalent to what the Christian's reaction should be when we see who we really are, our true identity, and what we look like in God's eyes. Because we are beautiful in God's eyes. You see, when we are in Christ, God doesn't see us for our sin or our failures and all that ugliness that we have. Because we have a lot of ugliness going on. But God sees us when we are in Christ. God sees Christ in us, made alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Pray with me, church. Father God, we...
come to you now with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving that you sent us a Savior, Jesus Christ, who, who not only died for our sins, but was lifted up, raised from the dead, and lifted up far above all authority by your power. We thank you that even though we were dead in our sins, that we too are a team of destiny, that we share Jesus' destiny to be raised up and lifted up into the heavenly realms. Father, my prayer today is that you may bless not only those of us in this room, but to all the other churches and all of your creation. Bless it with the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that it may know you better. I also pray that you would bestow us with knowledge that would, we would know the hope to which we were called. That we would know that we are your prized possession and that we would call upon your power when we are struggling with temptation and fighting for hope. Let us wield that power. Father, we thank you for all things for making it possible for us to see you face to face. It's in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. So, the first part of the letter of, of Ephesians is kind of all about who you are. Solving your identity crisis. And the, and the next half is about how you live consistent with that identity, with your true identity. And that's for another day. But church, may you live consistent with your identity in Christ. And may you go out there and show those people who have no hope. Show them who they really are. Let's stand and sing.